are listening to Space Time Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. The mind is a labyrinth, ladies and gentlemen, a puzzle. And while the paths of the brain are plainly visible, its ways deceptively apparent, its destinations are unknown, its secrets still secrets. And if we are honest, it is the lure of the labyrinth that draws us to our chosen field to unlock those secrets. Others have been here before us and have left us signs, but we, as explorers of the mind, must devote our lives and energies to going further, to tread the unexplored corridors in the hope of finding ultimately space, time, mind, mind, space, Somehow, somehow, do a Jedi mind meld. In space! Hi everybody, Pete Mandic here. Before we get on with the episode, I wanted to take a moment to thank all of you who have supported us by rating us on iTunes and by leaving us suggestions at our webpage at spacetimemind.com. And also by liking us on Facebook and following us on Twitter at spacetimemind99. I also want to let you know about a new way to support us, and that's by going to spacetimemind.com contact and clicking on the little donate button at the bottom of the screen. Any little bit helps, and we need whatever we can get to keep on keeping on, and perhaps even to improve. Thanks again, everybody. Richard and I really appreciate all that the listeners have done for us so far, and we hope you continue to enjoy the show. Hello. Hello, everybody. <laughs> it's Space Time Mind. Wait, okay. let me check this. Uh... Oh, yeah, we are live. We are indeed live. <laughs> I had to put my glasses on to see if it's... Just barely. You're, you're dying. <laughs> I'm also on drugs. <laughs> yeah. All the biotics must die. Kill all biotics. <laughs> Kill all biotics. But you know what's ironic is that I've been taking antibiotics and then also probiotics. <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering what the, what's the net outcome of that internal struggle is going to be. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> I think... I think bacteria have a mental life, so like... Wow, bummer. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy in your intestines right now. They're all duking <laughs> it out, and it's like saving Private Ryan. It's not even my intestines, it's my sinai, or sinuses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but antibiotics and gut flora are not the best friends. Yeah, exactly. That's what the probiotics are for. So, yeah. you know what? It's crazy. Uh, they, they And I'm on, I guess, this uh, second... Second generation of antibiotics, which are no longer the old school yeah. kind of. Anyway, whatever. So it's not this, fun, man. They make you feel terrible. <laughs> I had this weird. I, bad already, so. I had this weird conversation with uh, Eric Steinhardt recently. <laughs> he just uh, had this major uh, surgery on his sinuses a few months ago. Okay. And he he even has a YouTube series documenting his recovery because, like, huh. you know, to help people going through this, uh, they they. He said, but anyways, he said, Mandic, this is the best time ever to have sur a major surgery. Do it now. I'm like, what do you mean? Why do it now? He's like, well, two things. Number one, surgical techniques 
have never been better. They, yeah. he said, the, the way they did the surgery on the inside of my sinuses is, is they like put a big like magnet on the top of my head that was feeding a, a scanner. And then they sent a bunch of like robot drones up his nose. And the, the surgeon was like remotely controlling the nanobots or something like that. And I'm like, okay, yeah. great. Yes. <laughs> what's, the, what's the second point? He said, this is the, <laughs> well, well, hold on. Oh, sorry. Go on, go on, go on. We're at the peak of antibiotic efficacy. Like we oh, yeah, have so many antibiotics into the environment that pretty soon they're not really going to work anymore. We're going to be swarmed by super bugs, super, uh, microorganisms and we're all yes, going to fucking yeah. die. Yeah. So, that's a realistic worry. I think actually. I'm like, Oh, all right. Good points. I, I'm yeah. gonna get all the surgeries. I mean, I never take antibiotics, um, or not never, but, uh, when I was younger, obviously the doctors just prescribed them when you said anything, <laughs> but anyway, I rarely take antibiotics now. Um, and I never touch hand sanitizers. Yeah, I know. I have kind of gotten addicted to those because they're everywhere at LaGuardia, these little yeah. dispensers. And, like, you see all these people sneezing and then pushing the elevator buttons and stuff. I did succumb to the kind of general paranoia, yeah. and so I started using it. But, yeah, it's not a good idea. Um, but, anyway, uh, regarding that first Steinhardt point, you know, yeah. I would say uh, probably you could say that any point in history, <laughs> and it would be true, that that was the pinnacle of a surgical... Of <laughs> so the fact, I mean, there you know, the, I, I'm still influenced by the old Star Trek when, you know, Bones comes back to, um, you know, the Space Wells Star Trek where he comes back to San Francisco. He sees modern medicine, quote unquote, and says, oh, you primitive. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? I mean, I, I still think, you know, modern medicine has a, when you really understand what it does, like the way it does, it's very futuristic and advanced, but what it actually does is very primitive. Like the yeah. whole approach is like cut it out, kill it. Um, there's got to be a better way to doing medicine, and we'll find it someday. But anyway, so yeah, surgery. I, I you know, I think if you want to have your tail installed, now's a good time. Uh, I'm gonna get. Uh, a, <laughs> I, I like to tell my students who you know they're always they have like shocking <coughs> body modifications. I always you know they've got like ga like you could put your fist through their ear their ear gauges or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm like, well, I'm going to one up all you motherfuckers. As soon as I can, I'm going to have a living rat grafted to my scalp. Awesome. Take that. A living rat. Yeah. Living rat. And I'll feed them and stuff like that. But it only, yeah, it'd be temporary because, uh, it'll be like that Mugatu guy in uh total recall. He had like a little oh, dude growing out of his stomach. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> Mugatu. You mean, um, Kuwait? No. Yeah. His name wasn't Mugatu. <laughs> There's the big guy. And then he had the little guy, and the little guy. No, I know the little guy. Um, anyway, I don't remember. I don't yeah, remember. What was his name? That's a good point. I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, I'll think of it halfway through the conversation. Uh, so but now I won't stop thinking about it. So uh, here's a question. Uh oh. Do you want to live forever? Oh, no. <laughs> Is that your final answer? Uh, no. Well, I mean, I don't know. So is this what we're – okay, so you want to ask me that question? Do I want to live forever? The, well, first, that means what is what is I? <laughs> What's the thing that's living forever? But if this is in relation to a certain text, yeah, which I don't know if I can mention or not, but uh, – Sure. Okay. Why not? Well, I don't know. I don't know because there are various things in play. So anyway – Fair use. <laughs> If you so the way that chapter sets up immortality as impossibility of death, 
isn't that interesting to me. Um, I, I really don't. I mean, maybe it goes on to do other things that derives from that, some other conclusions or something. But if you define immortality as um, literally impossible to die, like that is impossible. Yeah. So you know, the examples were: suppose you upload, you'd have to make it so that it couldn't be deleted or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so that if the question was, is the, there a guarantee that you'll live forever? Is that the question under debate? Or is it that um, just the more kind of thing which I thought normally would be understood yeah. by this type of question, can we extend the life process such that barring catastrophic disasters, um, life continues indefinitely? Right. So if you mean live forever in that sense, then I think it's a different set of questions than if you mean live forever in that other impossible to die sense. And then to me it's less interesting, those questions, because it's not physically realistic um, that there could be such a thing. So, you know, unless there's some conceptually interesting thing that follows from what you would say about the impossible to die situations, it's just not that interesting of a question to me. Um, I think but there I is didn't some... far enough to see what the possible connections might be. I think there is something interesting in the ballpark. And, and by the way, I think it is fair to mention that there's a chapter in a book. The book is called Intelligence Unbound. That's an edited collection of things about uh, the future of machine minds and uploaded minds. And I'm writing a review right now. Uh, and it's going to be a largely positive review for uh, uh, Notre Dame uh, uh, philosophy reviews. But anyway, philosophical the, reviews. Bro. Philosophical reviews. And the chapter is by Thompson and Boddington, and they're arguing that um, death would be better than immortality. But one thing that's, I think, interesting to me, even though I, I agree with you, like... And they um, define immortality in the hardcore way that I was Well, saying. I think that there's something in... in there's some middle kind of uh, way of defining immortality that's kind of like what they're saying, but it is not, you know, in the realm of, of stuff that's, you know, physically impossible. So why fucking bother talking about it? Yeah. So one point they make is that um, part of the idea of immortality is that uh, you wouldn't, you, something like preventing uh, being, uh, dying against your will. And they give this argument that goes, if it's, if it's, possible for you to reserve the right to kill yourself, then there has to be some kind of mechanism in play whereby that's possible. And if there is a mechanism that would allow uh, your life to be ended, then there is some possibility that someone else uh, could exploit that and murder yeah. you or right. that just, you know, the entropy of the universe could fuck up and kill you. So right. um, if you, see, oh, sorry, go ahead. So if you really, you know, uh, I mean, the way they put it is all in terms of logical necessity, and maybe that's really, and you know, uh, a priori stuff, and maybe that's really the only way it's going to fly. But it's something like, if if you're you're going to guarantee that you don't die a, against uh, your will, in some sense, a guarantee, then there's going to be some sense in which you can't guarantee that because either you're still po possibly murderable, or uh, that mechanism will will fail just by natural uh, failure. And the longer you live, I still find that implausible though because I don't find I don't think I would think of immortality as being uh, that I don't die against my will. <laughs> that sounds like indestructibility or something like that. Um, immortality is simply I mean to be mortal is to be subject to aging and death. To yeah. be immortal is not to be subject to aging and death. So right. Not that you, it's not that you're not subject to murder <laughs> or destruction because someone, the universe, he, reaches heat death. 
it's that you don't succumb to the natural processes, yep. natural processes which lead to death in human beings. That those don't work on you. So that would be a good enough kind of immortality for me if I just if the body kept functioning long. Uh, and so you know, and this is kind of what if you look at people who are actually in this longevity science. Yeah. Um, like who's the guy Aubrey de Grey? So who t thinks of aging as a disease, and he has yeah. this whole idea of living, keeping up with science long enough to live forever. His idea is not to give people a guarantee that they'll live forever, but simply to say we can extend the life process indefinitely such that if you don't get run over by a car, hit by a meteor, etc., you can live as long as, as, as you want. Yeah. That's immortality as far as I understand it. If, if you mean something stronger by that, well, you know, you, I think it's maybe interesting to conceptually think about it, but I'm not sure. It doesn't – whatever you say about that, the less yeah. stringent thing is still – Yeah. What I think people mean by immortality, and what would be the question I would be answering? Right. Do I want to live forever? That would be the question. I think you and I share uh, a desire to not get lost in like a priori la la land. Um, I but, like it sometimes, but sure, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. But I mean, you know, I think we vibrate on that frequency most of the time. And um, but nonetheless, there's this other part of their argument that I think is kind of interesting. It might be adapted to our kinds of concerns. So the, the other part of the argument has to do with how um, the longer time is, the longer duration of time you're talking about, the more likely it is for any given uh, possible thing to happen. So as long yeah. as something has some non-zero possibility of happening, the longer you wait, the closer you get to, oh, it will happen. And that includes uh, bad things, things like... Um, you know, things that would cause you uh, a ridiculous amount of suffering or things that would just utterly extinguish your life. Right. So even if you thought like, well, look, you know, you can't really live forever because of the laws of thermodynamics. I mean, eventually, you know, the best you could do is trillions and trillions of years, but let's go for it. I mean, that's still pretty awesome compared to yeah. like a century at best yeah. is what humans have within their grasp now. But nonetheless, the longer you, the longer you go, the more you increase your chances of something terrible happening. Uh, but still I also increase your chances of something fantastic happening. <laughs> I mean, that argument, uh, first of all, assumes a kind of conception of time and of how you would assign the probabilities to these types of things. So, I mean, um, if time is finite, I guess that's correct. Uh, if time isn't finite, then there's no, you'd need a separate argument to show that at any given point of time, there wouldn't be an infinite amount of time before this terrible thing happened. And so, you know, if there's an infinite amount of time between me and that thing happening, well, that's the, in some sense not a terrible, <laughs> terrible outcome. Well, one way of thinking about it is if, um, if you've got an a infinite future and there's only a finite number of states that you could be in, that's another assumption in the background that we haven't mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, those two things... Um, from there, you can pretty much get to the point that any, I don't think so. No, because you need the further assumption that uh, any of those states is equally likely to occur, and I don't see why any what reason we would no, have. No, it doesn't have to be so, equal probable. They just well, if I'm fighting against those states occurring, then their probability of occurring may always be negligible because of my effort or will. Or I mean, so you need some other argument. If to they're greater than they're, zero, if they're greater than zero, yeah, you've got an infinite amount of time, then they will happen. Yeah, but there could be an infinite amount of time between this point and the time they happen, in which case that's a livable that you can live with that. <laughs> well, you can literally live with that. <laughs> but let's let's say that you've got there's a uh, a thousand sided die. 
Yeah. And on, on one side, there is a, uh, a little pitchfork. Uh -huh. And all the other sides have smiley faces. <laughs> right. And you roll that die um, an infinite number of times. Eventually, the pitchfork is going to come up. And when the pitchfork comes up, uh, that's going to really hurt. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go right in your pain centers, buddy. Well, it's not clear that it would show up at some point. It I mean, it depends on what you mean by at some point. Um, since every time you roll the die, there's the probability of it showing up is 1 in 20. It's random. Let's assume it's random. Or 1 so, in 1,000, whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah. What, sorry, whatever. Whatever the actual numbers yeah. are. So and it's random. Uh, and it's random. So every time you do it, there's the same likelihood that the, the pitchfork will show up. So you roll it an infinite number of times. If it came out that every single time was non-pitchfork, <laughs> that would not violate that rule. And so well, it's not guaranteed <laughs> that that would happen. Yeah, you're assuming that it would happen, but it's not guaranteed. And there's think, no, you would need a further argument is what I'm suggesting to get you to accept something like that. I think part of what's at stake here is what the definition of random is. So, yeah, random means that each time you do it, there's an equal chance. The same probabilities apply. Well, one way of putting it is what random means is that if you do it an infinite number of times, it will come up. Well, that's question begging. No, that's one way of defining random. Another way of defining random would be something like uncaused. Um, or another way is just that every time you do it, you have the same probability. I mean, look, every time you flip a coin, you have 50-50 for heads, 50-50 right. for tails. You flip it an infinite amount of times, and if you get all heads... That's not a violation of the laws of probability. That's just yeah. a really lucky streak of no. coin flippings. If, so it could be that way with the dice, too. If, if you flip it an infinite number of times and it yeah. doesn't come up heads any of those times, then it's meaningless to assert that there was a 50% chance. No, it isn't. No, it well, isn't. What does it mean, then? What does it mean to say that there's a 50% chance? It means that each time you did it, it's equally likely that it could be heads or tails. But what does that mean? It means, what do you mean, what does that mean? There's some math behind it, it where you can calculate like how this stuff works. You don't need to actually go, I mean, look, if you flip a coin ten times, you're not going to get five heads and five tails. If right. The claim is that as you do it, it approaches this kind of thing if you do it more and more okay. and more. Right, so if you... If you an infinite number of times, guess what? You still have an infinite number more to do it. So wait, wait, if wait, you what? did it an infinite number of times, let's suppose, like you did it every time... You flip the coin for every number between one and two. Let's yep. suppose um, there's still a, you can do it then for the numbers between two and three, and between three and four, and so on and so on. And so if you did it the first infinite amount of times and you got all heads, that wouldn't disprove anything. You could do it the next infinite amount of time, and then you know you would hope that you would be sort of honing in on something here eventually. But there's no guarantee that it would occur in any finite period. I'm not talking about uh, or even excuse me, any any infinite period. Yeah, I'm talking about infinite periods. Yeah, so there's uh, no guarantee that it would occur. I'm not saying that I, it wouldn't occur. I, I, I'm saying there's no guarantee. I, I think you contradicted yourself. You, your later remarks contradicted the stuff about approaching the limit. The uh -huh. stuff about approaching a limit is 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 committing you to saying that the greater the number of flips, uh, the the closer you're going to get to half of them being uh, heads. Yeah. So, and that's moving farther away from zero of them being heads. Yeah, but that doesn't contradict the claim that you get infinite heads one time. <laughs> that just means you have to do it more. And then hopefully, if you did it enough overall, if you, next time you did it, you got infinite tails, then yeah. you'd be done. That's 50-50. It just took time to get the ratio. 
So it just depends on how you assume these ratios would work out. But if they're really random, then each time uh, you have the same probability, the absolute same likelihood. And so you would really need, you know, if it worked out this way, you just need a larger sample that wouldn't show that it's not random or something like that. That's all I was saying. So I'm not saying that that's likely or that is guaranteed, but that if it turned out that way, yeah. uh, that wouldn't be a problem with saying that it's there's something probabilistic or random going on here. And so the same might be true with the pitchfork. I'm not saying it, it is, but certainly wouldn't be, you know, if you found out for some reason that there was an infinite period of time during which uh, the dice could be rolled and the pitchfork wouldn't come up, that's not a bad outcome. Now, maybe it will eventually come up in some infinite period of time. I mean, you know, I'm not, I think I have to be committed to that at some point. But, you know, so what? Okay. All right. I mean, that's just my feeling. Look, so I, I just feel like people bully you with these kinds of probabilistic arguments. Yeah, probably in real life, if you did it that way, it would come up. I'm not saying, but I'm just saying that's uh, to say, therefore, it must come up. So you're committed to something is overstepping, I think. But leaving it, look, I bet we could do a lot of this leaving infinity aside. <laughs> Suppose we agree there's just no such thing as actual infinite amount of future or actual... Uh, Infinite. But then the whole question is kind of moot because then it's impossible to live forever. Um, I mean, according to those guys. Uh, well, so there, no, but there are some questions that aren't moot, and one of them has to do with whether um, whether you're increasing the chances of terrible things happening to you. No. Uh, so you know, take some other things. So suppose, like, we agree that the universe is uh, is going to have a finite life. Uh, the Earth is going to have a finite life. Nonetheless, the longer we stay on Earth, the more we increase our chances of being wiped out by an asteroid. Yeah. That seems, I mean, you would grant that, right? Well, I would not grant it. I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> Suppose someone said to you, like, here's a, here's a reason for why we need to colonize, why we need to uh, yeah. get, like, not have all of humanity on one planet. Right. No, I already have kids. Yeah, yeah, I understand. So, uh, but, but I'm asking you if you would grant it. You would grant that, like, the longer we stay on this. Well, I said planet. something logically equivalent to that, so sure. Oh, what was the thing that's logically equivalent to it? I wouldn't not grant it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, I don't want to get in a fight with you about how you're wrong about those being logically equivalent. Some they are it. logically equivalent. No, they're not. <laughs> yeah, they are. I wouldn't not grant it. That, yeah. uh, that, might, be, that might be true of you. Fuck, fuck this. <laughs> You're true of me just in case I grant it. You wouldn't not grant it? Yeah. You're assuming you could... Never mind. I'm assuming I could either grant or not grant it. There's a corpse over there that wouldn't... That I wouldn't not grant it. I <laughs> would not grant it. Uh, okay, you win. No, the corpse can't grant things. No. I know I win. But anyway, I won you know... Record. I've oh, said yeah. at least once, I've admitted once that you have won. At least once. Uh-huh. Anyway, asteroids. So here's a here's a worry. Um, when I think of like the the really the, the the really worst things that have ever happened to me, and the really best things that have ever happened to me, and I like weigh those out, uh, the the bad always outweighs the good. Uh -huh. Maybe this makes me uh, a wimp or something like that, or I just haven't had good enough goods. Or you happen to just have normal human psychology. Which Maybe is, I think the way when, the human when I think of really, really bad things and really, really good things, and yeah. um, 
you, you said you said Mandic, uh, you have a choice. You either flip a coin or not flip a coin. If you flip the coin, on one side is the best, and the other side is the worst. And if you choose not to flip the coin, then it's just uh, neutral, uh, like you know, like death. Death, I presume, is neutral. You don't experience good or bad. Uh -huh. Anything. Um, I would basically choose death. Because, <laughs> uh -huh. ugh, when I really, like, if you, oh, the worst? The worst that I can wrap my head around is going to be constructed out of the worst I've already experienced. I've experienced some bad, bad things. Um, and uh, the best I can imagine is going to be constructed out of the best I've already e experienced. And I really, boy, I have a hard time, like, risking the worst. When you say the worst and the best, you mean the worst as you think of it, and the best as you not like what's objectively worse and what's objectively best. Some, I mean, this is yeah. I'm not even sure what objective would mean there. Maybe we could. Like you might think that you're terrified by snakes, but really, what you're terrified by is rejection or loneliness. Yeah, I'm making a claim about subjective, right? So, my own first-person estimation of of what of of the imaginable worst. And my first-person estimation of the imaginable best, yeah. I would uh, I would seek to avoid the worst. I would. So if so, if someone's, uh, so if someone said, "Hey, Mandic, uh, you want to live forever?" Uh, I'm I might I might be slowed down in my choice. I might like really hesitate thinking about the fact that like the longer I live, the greater that in increases the chances of something really awful happening. Uh -huh. And this, we could, I bet we could. And that, wait, this coin flipping with worse and best is supposed to convince me of this? <laughs> well, look, even leaving this argument infinity, sounds terrible to me. Look, you, leaving infinity aside, just like you know, yeah. here's a conversation you and I are having about like transhumanism or something like that. Would right. you seek to extend your life indefinitely in some of sense? Of yes, obviously. And one worry that I'm toying with here, kind of you know, just for conversation's sake, but I do also worry about a little bit is that like well the longer you live the the greater you in increase your chances of something awful happening like, yeah, I don't think I agree with that though I mean it's not there's no argument that's been presented for that so well there's an argument by analogy to the asteroid situation so the longer for example that we stay on earth yes the, and that assumes that we can't leave earth uh, right. Because so, if something terrible happens, then we may be able to predict it and avoid yep. it. Or so you know, right. the argument assumes that we can't do that with whatever terrible thing is lurking for us in the future. Yeah. And I've already said I think that's a fairly ridiculous thing to assume. And I haven't seen any argument given for why we should assume it. You try to convince me with some stuff about well, infinite things will happen eventually. I don't accept those arguments. No, but I, I forget the infinite. So now I just don't see why. You, we can't say, look, by our own reasoning and planning, yep. we might be able to avoid some of these things. And so that they were increasing their chance of happening isn't obvious if we can keep the chance of them happening but, at some manageably low level. But you, but right now you think it's more likely that we will, right? So here you've got some choices right now. Either you think it's more likely that we'll, we'll have an overall good outcome versus an overall bad outcome, um, or you think it's equally likely but you don't care because the good. No, I think it's more bad. likely that we'll have a good outcome because of our own activities, not because okay. of things happening, but because we will be actively trying to make sure that the good things happen. Uh huh. Now, yeah. so like leaving Earth if an asteroid's coming, like that type of activity <laughs> can okay. help manage these risks. You do incur a bit of a burden to say like why you think it's more likely that we'll be able to 
produce a good outcome than a, a bad outcome. Well, I just told you, because like the fact that by analogy, we can leave Earth if we can predict the asteroid, then there's no reason not to think that we might not be able to do the same sort of thing, predict the outcome and avoid it by... Well, one might... One might <laughs> by doing what's required to avoid it. <laughs> one might present other uh, an, uh, by analogy arguments and say like, well, you know, yeah. by analogy to all, like the, all sorts of human past, human history, like... Yeah. <laughs> We are really good in getting ourselves into some really shitty situations. We're really good at producing widespread human misery. And yeah, so, back then they had lower IQs and less technology, and now we our IQs are getting higher, technology is getting better. So telling me that people died of the plague, uh, therefore I shouldn't be around rats, is a bit, you know, uh, yeah, it might be true for them, not for us. So, yeah, by, they, those analogies break down in fairly obvious ways, I think. You think that... Um, there's not more human suffering than there's ever been. There's I'm, no, I like the kind of you know the uh, Pinker kind of argument that actually suffering's on the decline. Overall, I mean, there's still tons of suffering. Leave out animals or whatever, but uh, you mean yeah, the I mean, non-human animals? But uh, as far as human suffering, yeah, there's a ton of it. But I think that overall, there's less of it. Um, no, statistically uh, by ratio or something. Oh, I was like going to ask by ratio. Yeah, by ratio. if you just go by sheer numbers, that's yeah. cheating, though. Why is that cheating? That's kind of like what I was talking about. Uh, well, it's like comparing dollars of now to dollars in 1986 and saying, you know, without adjusting for inflation and stuff. I mean, there just are, there's more people now, so the fact that there's more people suffering doesn't show anything unless you look at the percentage of people suffering and whether that's trending up or trending down over time. And oh, hold it on seems, a second. It seems like there's an argument that it's trending down. But wait a minute. I'm, I'm questioning the whether the ratio thing trumps the the what you, the gross suffering thing. So here's here's a possible view. Um, we compare two situations: one in which um, you've got fifty percent of the humans suffering and some fifty percent uh, enjoying pleasures. Uh, that's one situation. The other situation has the same ratio: 50, 50. But in the first situation, there's only a hundred humans, and the other situation, there's a million humans. Yeah. And now you are uh, you ha have some kind of cosmic trolley lever. Would w which situation would be better to create? One sort of view. Do I have says, to create one, or do I get to destroy one? <laughs> well, let's say you can create only one. Wh which one would be better to create? The one in which there. In that is situation, I would create neither. That's ridiculous. I mean, it's a ridiculous proposition. Why must I create? There's a gun, a cosmic gun at my head at the cosmic switch. I'm no, not going to bring all that in, suffering in to existing. It's probing an intuition about whether the ratio, uh, ratio of suffering matters more than the gross amount. And I'm just trying to sketch a possible view. Uh -huh. uh, maybe you will disagree with it. But one possible view would say, look, um, suffering outweighs pleasure. We have, a, we have a moral duty to decrease suffering that outweighs any kind of moral duty to bring about uh, pleasure. And further... Uh, yeah, uh, I tend to agree with that, probably. And, and further... You equivocate by lack of... Ending suffering is a kind of pleasure, but barring that, yeah. Barring that. And further, uh, what matters is gross amount, not, not ratio. That it would actually yeah. be worse, in some objective sense of worse, for yeah. there to be a, a, a thousand people suffering than a hundred people suffering. And those situations don't change if if there's like in, a thousand people uh, also having pleasure in the thousand person suffering case. 
So that's that seems like a possible view. It's not ridiculous. I feel some intuitive pull in that direction, uh-huh. even though in the grant, you know, I kind of don't go in utilitarian directions. Um, but right, I can right, see right. I can see the appeal of, of that. I don't kind think of this is a utilitarian consideration. I mean, what, you think utilitarianism comes out saying what you're saying? I could. I mean, I could see calling that a version of it. By the way, we're uh-huh. sneaking up on break time. Oh, saved by the bell. question i mean um is there less suffering now could be answered in what you're saying i think is there's two different ways of answering that question one is by just looking at the number of people suffering in which case the answer is obviously that there's more people suffering now um uh and then the other way was looking at whether the percentage of people suffering is worse overall uh so one way i would think yeah so you know i don't know um if you compare our time to the past, so instead of your weird, crazy example, use a more realistic one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, clearly in our time, um, well, not clearly, I shouldn't say that, but arguably, according to science, because this, this pinker stuff has been disputed. I don't want to act like that's established, but some people have made the argument, which some people find convincing, that there's less percentage of overall population enduring these kinds of things currently. Um, so we could compare, take the actual number of people suffering today, it's an amount. Compare that to the amount of people suffering during the Roman Empire, let's say. It's N minus M, where M is whatever, because there's less people. So there's some big difference between the number of people suffering today and the number of people suffering then. And then I think if you ask uh, the kind of question you're asking, which would you bring into existence, <laughs> that's Roman situation or ours. Um, I think it's less clear what the answer is. I think, well, if you look at, okay, in the Roman time, let's make up a number. Let's say, you know, what is it? 60% of the average, maybe even more. Let's say 80% of the of people die violent deaths. 
um, rape, torture, murder, uh, whatever. Um, whereas in our time, you know, let's make, I don't know the numbers off, I, I'm making this up, but let's say it's, let's just magically say it's reverse. Only 20%, I doubt that's true, but let's say 20%. Yeah. So to me, it seems that their situation's worse. Um, now, to any given person, you're right, who's suffering, uh, if you just add up the numbers, you're going to say our time is worse overall. Um, so, I mean, it's an, inter it's an interesting question. I'm not exactly sure what to say. I guess my own feel is that, yeah, I wouldn't bring the Roman situation. If 80% of the people there are dying a violent death, and only like 1% of 1% is living a mo even a moderately secure life, it seems like a really terrible situation to me, even if overall the number of people that suffering is less than what's currently suffering today. I mean, I think it's a hard question. I'm not trying to make light of it. That's why I think it's... Yeah. But to me, it just seems like if you like that seems yeah, I would not want to be, but would I want to be responsible for this type of world either? I mean, <laughs> no, that's why we're trying to fix it. Obviously, this world sucks. But uh, so I, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I have to think about it more. Um, I will reflect on that. Do you know about the dust mote in the eye uh, brouhaha, <laughs> like with the uh, Elitzer Yudikowsky, a bunch of those? Uh... Yeah, uh, the the. Um, Less than wrong crowd. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. He, and he's been digging in his heels for years. I th and I think his position is something like if one person like being tortured to death, yeah. like, you know, like being flayed alive for five minutes, um, that, that's actually okay compared to a million years of having a, a little piece of dust in your eye. Yeah. Or something. Like, so it's he's insane. got this like really straightforward. <laughs> way of doing utilitarian math whereby like yeah. yes there's just hedons and uh, it doesn't matter it, it just comes to raw arithmetic right um, so yeah being flayed alive let's say that's a million negative hedons but uh a trillion a trillion trillion uh years of just having a little dust in your eye Turns out to be more positive heat on, so there. But that's like a reductio of that simple-minded version of utilitarianism. I, I find it very hard to believe that a, like a, a, a fully rational agent confronted with those two situations would choose being fatal. Me I too. Choose, I, totally I would agree. choose the dust moat every day. Like I choose it all day long. Me too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but this Yudikowski guy is like it. it unless I'm completely misunderstanding him, uh, he seems to just be digging in his heels, and he's like, "Yeah, it's." Uh, just obvious yeah. to him. That there are heels to be dug here. The pure arithmetic thing. <laughs> but look, I've never been, I, un, unlike you, I have not been attracted to utilitarianism. Um, <clears throat> uh, I like, I admire its spirit, obviously, and I admire the idea of trying to naturalize ethics, obviously. Um, and I, But I think that you can get the main tenets of utilitarianism from other commitments, like a commitment to insight. Because I, I agree with, I mean, obviously, I don't want to say, What's right about utilitarianism is the idea that suffering is bad. We should minimize it. I mean, yeah. within our to the extent of our power, obviously. Um, and so I would like, to, obviously, whatever's true about that idea has to be preserved. Whether or not you can take that one single idea, yeah, and turn it into a universal principle of ethics. That's obviously what utilitarianism tries to do. And yeah. unless your preference, you, I mean, it gets murky quick. But anyway, right. In some sense, um, that's what they try to do, and I just don't. I just don't see the motivation for that, unless you just, you know, you're desperate for some kind of ethical view, but I don't know. I mean, these questions are tough. So, uh, 
Speaking of something more realistic, have you uh, been following what's going on at the Large Hadron Collider? No. Oh, you don't care about what's happening over there? I you know, it's on, it's on again, you know, it, because I'd rather talk about our universe. If they're, if they're going to destroy the fucking brothers. universe, I need to know about this. <laughs> well, they could, I mean, I don't know. It's getting very interesting over there. I, I, I mean, so there's been some kind of bumps in the data. You know, I'm such an amateur in this area, especially when it comes to applied physical, like experimental physics. Um, but I do like to read the archive and the, you know, the uh, theoretical high-energy physics stuff. I understand less than one-tenth of one percent of what I read on that site, but I enjoy reading it. But there's some, been some activity over there recently, it seems like, uh, some spikes in the data or something like that that people are getting excited about where they, they shouldn't, they weren't predicting that there would be this kind of um, activity, which suggests that maybe there's a, you know, something like a particle or a not predicted by the standard model, um, or at least as currently, just uh, as it w wouldn't have been expected by anything which isn't um, kind of based in string theory, I guess, is the idea, or at least this is one, the argument of this paper that I was reading. So if, and this is all speculation, but one of the interesting ideas is that uh, possibly there may be some kind of experimental confirmation of string theory, or disconfirmation, or something like that, uh, of string theory, which of course it, yeah, is, is exciting news because for a long time people have said that it's not, you know, doesn't make empirical predictions and blah, blah, blah. And the details of this are really technical and I don't understand all of them, but uh, I do think it's interesting that physicists are saying that it's possible that there could be some data which would um, match a prediction that only a string, and it's a very particular kind of string theory too, by the way, it's not just like string theory, but uh, apparently it's like some old school version of string theory with many higher levels of dimensions and stuff like that. Um, but if you could show any kind of, and so that made, a lot of people thought those aren't very realistic, I guess, for physical descriptions of our universe. But if there were any kind of connection between the mathematics of string theory and what's happening at the Large Hadron Collider, that would obviously be some of the biggest news ever. And everyone, not everyone, but many people have thought that what was, where they would find that activity would, they're looking for the, you know, symmetry and super partners and supersymmetry and all that stuff. And so far that's been kind of a major bust. Um, as far as I understand things, they're not finding uh, the things which would be needed to verify the standard model in that sense. Although they're hopeful if they go up to higher energies, they could. So this could be actually pretty exciting news. And of course, it's just one paper, um, which could be wrong, but what they're basically saying is that this anomalous bump at these um, certain energy levels where they didn't expect it can't be predicted by any, uh, can't be accommodated by, or it looks like it shouldn't be accommodated by any non-string theory type of theory, which is all by itself right there. If that, and of course they could, I, I guess, what were they saying? The new data comes out tomorrow, I think? So um, their time, of course, so we could get some interesting new results on this pretty soon, actually, which is super exciting. So here's a novice question. Uh, is When you say standard model, is that the same thing as what people call lambda CDM, lambda cold dark matter, or are we just talking about two different? No, that's it, yeah. Uh, but I'm not, you know, the dark so matter. Would... Sorry, go ahead. So lambda CDM and standard model are, are the same thing? I mean, I, I think that, uh, well, I, I don't know, <laughs> but uh, okay. I'm, I think for our purposes it's probably safe to say that they are. I mean, the standard model is simply um, the theory of protons, quarks, electrons, uh, basically quarks and their interactions, um, you know. And uh, I, I don't think you need to bring in, well, actually, you do actually need to bring in the cold dark matter stuff to explain 
How many how many spatial dimensions are in the standard model? Is is that the ten dimensional model? In the standard model. Yeah, yeah. The, the thing that this this data might be disconfirming. Uh, well, it wouldn't be disconfirming the standard model. It would be disconfirming any oh. um, um, any kinds of uh, non-string theory based versions of it. Oh, oh, oh! I thought you said that this it, this can't be explained by the standard model. By standard models that are interpreted in a non-string theory type way. I see. Okay. So standard, standard model, yeah, standard model is ambiguous, I guess, in that sense. Okay. So you know, it's the standard model stands. <laughs> standard. It, it's pretty. It's, I would say it's quantum mechanics uh, plus special relativity and some stuff about the basic. You know, I guess quantum mechanics already gives you that. So yeah, I guess I would say standard models is quantum mechanics plus special relativity. Yeah. Um, and then what we want is a theory that unifies them and conjoins them in some sense. And that's where you get into interpretations of this stuff. So string theory has been the one major candidate because of its ability to. Uh, well, predict that there would be a uh, a graviton, which is a, a spinless certain part, a particle of a certain whatever doesn't matter. So it makes the kind of prediction that can't be made else. Well, that many people think other theories can't make. Um, so that's where you get like quantum loop gravity and those kind of things. I don't know. My personal feelings is you know those things aren't serious, but that's an amateur's opinion. So but, I don't know how serious that is. So to tie this into some earlier things. Uh, that we've talked about, and also to try to get some philosophy in here. Uh -huh. uh, on several occasions over the life of Space Time Mind, you have sung the praises of string theory on the grounds that it gives you extended things. Yeah, one-dimensional objects. You don't like extensionless entities. It's not that I don't like them, I just, what are they? <laughs> they are entities that have other properties, they just don't have that one. That makes no sense to me. But it's what do you do, do, so? I, I guess I want to ask you questions like: do, Are you just saying it's unintuitive? Are you are you relying too much on your senses, which happen to? No, I, I mean, look. What I said was it would be nice to have a theory that didn't say something like that, and if, and string string theory gets around that, so it's a good place to look. If reality isn't that way, then whatever. Who cares? But, uh, but what's your beef with it? I mean, some people have said the beef with it is like in, infinitesimals are kind of contradictory. It's unclear how. You, you could add up a bunch of these things with zero extension and get anything greater than zero uh, and, le and less than infinity. So some people have said there's contradictions in there. And, uh, uh -huh. and all you've said in the past is like, well, fuck that bullshit. And I'm wondering if, you're, if your argument is it has to do with like these alleged contradictions or if you... No, I don't think there are any contradictions. I'm on the side... I mean, I think it's perfectly... I think you can totally make sense of the idea in a mathematically precise way how you can take... Add a bunch of stuff up and get uh, something. I mean, well, if if you just mean like the calculus. Yeah, that's kind of where I was going. Yeah, then I, I think that's on firm ground, and there's no contradictions at all involved in anything that the that calculus is committed to, at least in set theory terms. I mean, if you go, if you want, maybe you have to go to category theory. What do you mean by I mean, whatever. sense then? If you know, when you say that extensionless entities don't make any sense, and you grant that you can make sense of them in a certain kind of mathematical um, I guess what I mean is I don't think that reality is mathematical. <laughs> uh, yeah. well, uh, like it involves stuff. Uh huh. <laughs> and stuff takes up space. But maybe that's just an you know maybe that's just uh, me. It would be, all I have ever said is that it would be nice to have a theory around with, with some extended objects in it, 
because you know that's nice. <laughs> Makes uh, sense. <laughs> it sets off your nice detector. <laughs> it sets off my nice detector. Nice, de exactly. nice. That's of course, that's not why physicists like it. Physicists like it because it predicts this kind of the graviton, the spinless mass, whatever uh, particle, yeah. um, and it also uh, allows us. I mean, it, it's you know what's not so. You have a one-dimensional object, that's a string, and it's moving through space. It sweeps out a brain, that's a two-dimensional object. These things can... So you, it's very clear how you would build up um, higher-dimensional objects yeah. from this one. It's, and it's, while not contradictory, I don't think it's less intuitively clear, to say the least, how you could build up ex uh, extended-dimensional objects from something that's, point, that's a point particle or massless, or not massless, but extensionless. Um, <clears throat> now that's not an argument. That's just saying, you know, it'd be nice if you had a, something like this. And by the way, we do. Oh. And that's string theory. But things things that are uh, one dimensional, they have zero. They have length, but they they with respect to like width or height, they're extensionless. Yeah. Isn't that as weird as full blown zero dimensionality? Well, it's pretty weird, but I don't know if it's as weird. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. It's not an argument from weirdness. I, it's an argument from niceness. <laughs> um, the intuitive idea, I think, is that it, you can see how you would build up higher dimensional objects from one-dimensional things. Yeah. But it's not clear at all how you build up any dimensional object from a zero-dimensional object. Why should we care about intuitions, especially in this domain? Yeah, we shouldn't. Which is why, if the best theory of physics is one where there are uh, point particles, then Suck it, <laughs> intuitions. Okay. But right. that doesn't seem to be the best theory of physics. Uh, you know, that's the other. So there's two elements. The one is the physics of it, and then the other is, gee, it's also nice that they're. I mean, it just so happens they're nice. It's nice that there there are some extended objects here, which latches back onto something that's uh, intuitive. It, it, not exactly like what we wanted at the beginning, maybe, but it's in the ballpark. Okay. Not, that's pretty cool, I think. So. Um, it's not, this isn't supposed to be an argument, and I don't think any physicist have ever really, at least not to my knowledge, has ever really said, this is a reason to prefer string theory. Like I said, they think this is exciting because it predicts a certain uh, relation between gravity and quantum mechanics, and that's um, what has been missing. <laughs> and what's been so frustrating is that um, while it may seem easy to go in there and modify quantum mechanics in a certain way to fit gravity in, every way they modify it turns out not to be internally consistent or doesn't match in predictions in some way or something like that. And so string theory seems to be um, the, uh, the, the only game in town, quote-unquote, to use the you know, Fodor argument. But, uh, and that doesn't mean it's right, but that does justify, I think, the, a large part of the physics community spending their careers researching string theory. And um, it is also nice that it connects up to things like extendedness and dimensionality, but, you know, that's a, that's a different issue. I mean, and by the, you know, so, I don't know, the more I think about this stuff in my old age, the more I gravitate towards something like the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics here. Um, and Wait a minute, I, that's the no interpretation interpretation, right? Or is that... Uh, well, the, it's, the, yeah, it's the we ask questions and... Quantum mechanics tells us what we can expect as answers, but doesn't tell us about the way things are. Yeah. Perspective of our questioning, or sort of. It's not that it doesn't tell us how things are objectively, because it does. It tells us how, if we ask this question, 
then you're likely in this respect to get that answer and that respect yeah. to get this answer. But you don't get any. But as far as the sta as far as like yeah. reality itself, quote unquote, yeah. you can't you can't say anything about it except that if you ask this question, you get this answer. If you ask that question, you get this answer. Yeah. And that's and you know that's frustrating because you want um you want there to be something out there independent of you're asking the question, which is or isn't a certain way. And it seems yeah. that quantum mechanics just precludes that and. Um, the, the more you think about the mathematical formulism, how beautiful it is and how it agrees so well with empirical yeah. uh, data, I don't know. Uh, the, you can modify it in various ways. I mean, that's what all the interpretations are. You know? So I've, it just seems like we have a choice here, the choice of either committing to intuitions that somehow reality must be classical because yeah. that's what classical physics really assumed that reality was or wasn't a certain way and then blah blah or that you know is reality quantum in this sense it just isn't a way until until we query it and so tell me if the following is is just totally naive or not so um, it seems like when it comes to explanations either there's going to be an infinite chain of explanations right so you know, we've got some data. What explains that? Well, there's this model that would, there's these entities that would explain that. Well, what explains those? Well, there's this other stuff that explains it, right? Either that chain of explanations is infinite yeah. or there's a bottom level. There's a place where, as Wittgenstein says, the spade turns and you, there's just no further explanation. So um, my question okay. about whether I'm being naive is, is, is the Copenhagen interpretation just kind of like saying, like, you know, look, there's going to be a point where you don't get any more explanations and we found it like it, it's quantum mechanics and there's no further explanation. There's no explanation why these variables are this way instead of that way. Why these equations as opposed to some other equations, there, there's just like, what were you expecting an infinite number of explanations? Like either it's going to bottom out somewhere or it never bottoms out. It's just an infinite number. Sure of why, why, well, why. No, it depends on what you mean by explanation. Like everything does. <laughs> of course. So, so um, you know, string theory in some sense helps to explain why those things are the way they are. That's all been one of the great appeals of it. Yeah. Is that things that seem arbitrary from a classical point of view aren't don't come out arbitrary from string theory. They come out predicted by the math of the of the theory. But is string sorry is so it that string counts theory as an explanation? But uh, when we're talking about um, <laughs> when we're talking about like major interpretations of quantum mechanics. There's what are what are they? There's Copenhagen. There's many worlds. Is string theory a, a separate option, or does it plug into one, one of those? It's no string theory is not an interpretation of quantum mechanics. I mean, right, right. So I, I was uh, trying to ask you a question about Copenhagen and whether. Uh, yeah, but so I was saying something that's maybe you know more not more fundamental, but something that yeah more that is more fundamental that subsumes both of these things as elements. Um, maybe you know the, the so-called M theory or whatever the ultimate theory of which all these yeah. things are special cases. Um, so there is a quantum. Well, so if something from string theory explains something over here in quantum mechanics, then is that a bad thing? I mean, no, no, no. But like, um, I, I, my understanding of like part of the debate between, for example, Copenhagen interpretation people and many worlds people is that on the Copenhagen thing you've got these like brute probabilities and on the many worlds thing you get something like an explanation of of, of the probabilities and that's somehow mm -hmm. a, an argument in favor of the view uh-huh um 
That's interesting. Yeah, and no, so, I mean, yeah, right, what right, I'm right. Saying so is, I would say that they're desperate to cling to reality being classical <laughs> as opposed to being the way quantum mechanics sort of suggests that it is. But what I guess what I was saying is, like, you know, the, don't we have to, like, just live with, like, either... Either way, you have the um, end of the explanation. I right. see what you're saying. Yeah, uh -huh. and so, like, if your complaint against the Copenhagen interpretation is that it ran out of explanations, well, right. weren't you expecting that to happen eventually anyway? But wouldn't it be equally unsatisfying for there to be an infinite number of explanations? Right. If you, so if your main urge is, like, well, uh, to keep on pushing, don't you have to right. appreciate that at, at some point you're going to be disappointed, right? You're not – either you're, you're going to get an unexplained explainer or you're just going to get this infinity of, of questions. Um, and so yeah. maybe I'm being naive. But that's th that kind of thinking is what leads me more and more towards what I would think of as Copenhagen interpretation, insofar as I understand anything at all about the quantum mechanics debates. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I vacillate between the I mean the other the mother I guess the the competitor for my for me in my mind was uh, I mean you know many worlds I don't really believe that, uh, but you know um, naive like. Wave function realism was the other one that I have thought was kind of cool. That the way reality is when you're not looking at it is just the wave function. But you know, I don't know. Is that that's kind of a naive view? So yeah, I just I, and also you know, there's something about Copenhagen that uh, when I found out that um, like Schrodinger and these people, he was deeply influenced by Kant. So the idea that uh, the Copenhagen interpretation sounds suspiciously like a Kantian view, I don't think is an accident. I think that they sort of were. Rec uh, the question is about what is the job of science? Is the job of science to, like you yeah. say, reveal nature naked? <laughs> or is the job of science just to tell us, you know, the answers yeah. to our questions? Like, we have questions, we ask them, nature tells us. I think the Copen a part of the philosophy of the Copenhagen interpretation right. is just that, that science is, the role of science is not to get to the bottom of everything, so to speak, but yeah. simply to say which things can we ask and what answers will we get. And if, right. you, could, if you could come up with a theory, that could answer every question you could conceivably ask about a system, <laughs> like how will it behave right. and so forth and so on, yeah. then that's a good theory, right? I mean, in yeah. some that, and I, that, I, I agree with all that. Mechanics and, does it. And, and you don't need to add all this other stuff. Right. And I am, uh, I'm, I'm happy to <coughs> even agree with that much Kant. Some people nice. go a step further, though, and they want to dress it up in, in ways that make it seem like a kind of idealism. Yeah. Um, no, so well, you do have to say that it's not idealism, but you do have to say that um, which answers we get depends on which questions we ask. <laughs> yeah, well, and uh, guys, it Bohr. Yeah, yeah. So there's these. Sorry, I didn't hear what you said. What? what? It's uh, Niels Bohr. He's the main architect of the Copenhagen interpretation. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, he's writing at a, t at a time, I guess, where positivism is really in fashion. Like, you know, uh, idealism and, and Kant. You know. That was a really big deal for for hundreds of years in in Europe uh, and uh, to some degree. Well, German, idea. yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the way he like the, there's some ways he puts it where it's like, look, there's experiences. And yeah. You just you know, as long as we we can predict the experiences, that then that's all there is to reality, and that's like a very idealistic way of putting it. And I don't. You don't have to say. I, I wouldn't want to put it that way. But you do have right. to say predict the outcomes of experiences. I mean, excuse me, of experiments. Right. Yeah. And the outcomes of experiments can only be. Yeah. <laughs> can only be um, known. Yeah. By those with experiences. But well, yes, yeah, so I, I, I do think. That's a for me. 
Well, I, I do. Th yeah, I do think this opens the door to. Um, I don't know if it's a to idealism, but it does open the door to uh, to uh, the possibility that consciousness could play a role here, which is something that you know I don't think is ludicrous. <laughs> but before we get distracted, but you know what I wanted to mention just one other thing, which you know this is again you know I feel even less confident about these things than the stuff we normally talk about because I'm so, you know I am just a, an interested onlooker about all this stuff. But one of the things that's been catching my attention lately uh, on the same topic here is the ER equals EPR. Have you been hearing about any of this at all? So Einstein, Rosen, Einstein, Einstein, Einstein Rosen, Rosen, Podolsky. It's a catchy, I mean, it's a catchy kind of way of saying. Uh, Did one of those guys build a bridge? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Einstein, Rosen bridge. <laughs> so an Einstein, I Rosen don't know it bridge. I don't know this stuff, man. Uh, an Einstein, Rosen bridge is a non-traversable wormhole. Um, Connecting That's what she said. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's rough, bro. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. I think you would owe an apology to... <laughs> I, I apologize to everybody who heard that. <laughs> <laughs> it was unavoidable and determined that you would do that. But yeah, okay. So it's a non-traversable wormhole. So, I mean, from relativity theory, you have space. Space can be bent. So two uh, points in space, which are separated in a space-like way, not, you know, that you would have to travel some distance to get from one point to the other. There could be a wormhole between the two. I mean, the typical analogy is you take the paper, you bend the paper in half, yeah. you draw two dots on the paper, you draw a line between them, you fold the paper in half, you poke a hole, and you say, aha, you see this distance is much shorter than that distance. And so mathematically, these things are allowed. As far as I understand it, what's not allowed is that you could go through one of these and come out the other side. So there's... You know, unlike in the movie, um, which just came out, Intergalactic. Stellar, or, Interstellar. Yeah, Intergalactic Planetary. Um, that one, Interstellar. So Interstellar. they went through one, which, as far as I understand it, every physicist in the world came out and said, yeah, right, that doesn't happen. But there are these things called Einstein-Rosen bridges, which theoretically exist, and they're a consequence of general relativity. Um, so that's the ER. Uh, Einstein Rosenbridge, and then the EPR is just entanglement. So the idea that when you have um, two particles that interact with each other, they become entangled, and that constrains the kinds of things that you can find out about them later, etc. Um, so the interesting suggestion is that uh, they might be the same thing. That the wormholes, um, or excuse me, the Einstein Rosenbridges. Well, but, and I forgot to mention that, importantly, these things exist between black holes. <laughs> Did I leave that out? Yeah, so the so idea the, is that... The sorry. entanglement relation, then, is mediated by some kind of mini-micro uh, bridges, little wormholes. Two Say that again? So is the idea that when two particles are entangled, that what is mediating that is a wormhole? Well, yeah, the idea is that you can model entanglement as an Einstein mathematically as a uh, wormhole between two black holes, but also interestingly the other way. If you have a wormhole between two black holes, you can model them mathematically as two entangled particles, um, and you get the kind of same predictions and outcomes and so forth and so on. So the idea literally is that they might be the same thing. And at first this sounds really fantastic and weird, obviously, and you know, there was an article in Aeon about this, uh, or what, Eon or whatever that you know, oh, not, not, you know, Quanta. Yeah. That, that magazine which talks a lot about quantum mechanics. And it sounds kind of far out and so forth, but I think that it's actually serious. And I think that it's actually becoming 
established. I mean, this is just my opinion as an as an interested onlooker, obviously. But it seems to me as though serious physicists are saying this has become an established result or close to it to be taken very seriously. And that seems to me to be very interesting because then there are all these other weird ideas about these things holding space time together somehow, which I don't understand that, obviously. Um, but just establishing the fact that there's this kind of interesting mathematical relation between these two things, pretty, pretty you know, not what you might expect. So we're, we're uh, out of time, but I want to sneak in, sneak in a question that will uh, attempt to relate this to the earlier discussion about living forever. Cool. Of the various um, main phys physics theories out there, which, uh, is there any hope for the universe not petering out? Like, <laughs> so like, uh, on some, at least on some of these, thermodynamics spells do, you know, like eventually, like we're just gonna, the whole universe is gonna hit thermodynamic equilibrium. And nothing that. is gonna survive that. Nothing physically possible could survive that that would support cognition or any kind of life. Is there any physical theory uh, that's out there now that would give us a hope for uh, avoiding that kind of uh, heat death? You mean besides the multiverse? How does the multiverse help? There'd be some other universe. No, I want to I <laughs> live forever in this universe. <laughs> By the way, I, I want to, first of all, before we end, say I don't endorse the argument from string theory to the multiverse. I mean, it's an interesting argument, but, you know. Um, some people have been going around talking about that lately because of the so-called string landscape, that there are so many different ways of filling in string theory, uh, maybe even an infinite number, although that's contestable. But anyway, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, it depends. Uh, if this is a simulation, <laughs> can we escape heat death by... Going out of the simulation, uh, yeah, maybe. So that I don't take, you know, some people interpret the holographic hypothesis as the evidence for simulation. I don't know if that's true. I still think it's not clear what to to make of the holographic hypothesis or yeah. or the claim that I mean, you know, in some sense, it's just the claim that the math is made easier and this theories solving hard problems in one uh, mathematical framework can be translated into an easier mathematical framework and you get answers which give you equivalent answers in the other framework. So does that mean that we, you know, that our universe really is a two-dimensional information at the edge of the blah, blah, blah? Uh, you know, I, I think it's uh, not clear. By the way, and by the way, all of that's been shown in anti-de-sitter space, which is not even remotely similar to real, I mean, you know, the kind of space that normal physical theories uh, yeah. that we think are candidates for us to live on. Anyway, um, so could that help us avoid heat death? I don't know. I mean, that really, it depends on what dark matter turns out to be and, you know, how, how all these things ultimately shake out. So that I, I wouldn't really know the answer to. Can I sneak a last word in about life and death? Sure. So I was, I wanted to sneak it in somewhere. <laughs> there's, no grace, there's no graceful way to do it. Okay. You know, one thing I think about all this stuff is kind of infected by a certain Buddhist perspective. And that uh -huh. is the value, I value certain states of consciousness that I've had a taste of already. And that is to 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 sense the eternal now. See, so and you, maybe you've you've been there too, where you you're in a frame of mind where you're like, yes, this current moment is in some real sense eternal, uh -huh. and it's good enough. It's fully adequate. And in a sense, yeah. like you die every moment. In a sense, uh, you never live forever. In another sense, every moment itself lives forever. 
and there are certain states of consciousness that you can get in, some of which yeah. are you get in deliberately through practicing meditation. And when I think about that stuff, I, I kind of think like, yeah, sure, transhumanism is great. I would like to keep on living. But also, like, there's a certain point where I just wouldn't care anymore because, you know, I value these um, Zen states. Uh-huh. Now. So this is from a subjective... And you couldn't, and you couldn't have them in... What do you, I mean, what's the... I'm not sure what well, the... Well, once is. you have them, like, it, it kind of it saps your will to, to, to literally keep on keeping on. You embrace a more just natural, human, biological, good old-fashioned yeah. life and death. I mean, you know, this, uh, not to end on a down, down <laughs> but... Uh, We're all going to die. I personally don't feel that there's anything especially wrong about suicide. I mean, I think in some cases it can be wrong, and in some cases it isn't wrong. Um, so I certainly am not someone who thinks that it's always wrong to kill yourself. And that's why I think in these kinds of debates, there's kind of a, yeah, you know, you, you want to live for a billion years and then commit suicide? What's wrong? I don't see. Who cares? <laughs> that's your choice. Uh, you, you, know, there, you could give yeah. all kinds of arguments and so forth and so on about who you affect and whatever, but um, oh well. So if the argument assumes that, um, yes, uh, and this is one of those things I didn't like about the chapter, if you say, I want to live forever means I also officially commit to never ending my own life. That seems ridiculous to me. Yeah. Uh, why, would you, why would you accept that? These are loaded questions. Um, the question is, you know, would you extend your life indefinitely, uh, which means barring catastrophic or your own whatever, um, you would live as long as you want to. So yeah. what's wrong with that? Live as long as you want to. Yeah. Um, and that avoids these kinds of worries, I think. You know, yeah. Unless you really think, oh, once you're alive, you must stay alive. It's your duty to prevent your death. Meh. I don't, yeah. I don't see, also, by the way, I don't see what's so, what's so wrong about um, having these stages. So you could live for an eternity in that moment and then go yeah. to the next moment. And if there's an infinite amount yeah. of time, you might make it through three or four moments. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's such a bad way to spend eternity. If so it really sounds true. like we agree a lot. Like we want to live forever, but we reserve the right to push the suicide button built into our forehead. <laughs> wherever you're going to put the button. <laughs> I know. Well, a lot of you know, the way it is, it make it sound like well, you sign up for a U-Corp eternal life. We guarantee you will never die. <laughs> and that's not what anyone's asking for. What we want, I, what I want is the Aubrey de Grey thing. Um, we'll keep you alive as long as no one shoots you and or you don't kill yourself. I mean, as long as no one shoots you, including yourself. <laughs> yeah. And or heat death of the universe. <laughs> Yeah, and or, you know, I'm much more optimistic about by the time that approaches, we'll have figured out some way to deal with it. You know, like, we'll fly out to the universe and inject it with more heat, man. Yeah. <laughs> All right, dude. Well, uh, good talking to you. <coughs> oh, yeah. Sorry about the... Uh, Get well soon. The loopiness. But, yeah, it's been good talking to you, too. Bye.
Thank you.